This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Funny thing happened on the way to work. So many jokes usually start. This is a true story. I was just driving along New North Road, which is quite near Eden Park in Auckland. This was last night. And there was this huge big orange sign that said, Event. Big orange sign surrounded by you-know-what. Orange freaking cones. Event. Uh, the Blues were playing a match at Eden Park. I thought, come on, really? That sign's talking it up a little bit. Oh, good heavens, they won. They won one. All right, uh, you and McCabe, speaking of sporty stuff, will be back with us tomorrow evening. He's got amazing stories around the World Cup. I reckon he's the best, and his book, World Cup Baby, is so worth it. You can buy the book if you like and have a look what he's all about. Go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, click on where it says click here for this weekend's lineup, and you'll get the obvious. All right, we go to the movies next with James Crute. We preview the International Film Festival. Woohoo! The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Yay, 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 and yay. The International Film Festival is coming to town. It will eventually spread throughout the regions, but uh, it's Auckland's lucky time uh, to kick off with on, when is it, July the 19th. James Crute's with us to give us an early heads up. I've got the program in front of me, James. Oh, are you able to lift it, or is it way too heavy? No, it's it's your standard, actually, nice and glossy, but it's, it's always lovely to have a physical copy in your hand, I reckon, still. Uh, yeah, I reckon so, and of course they always get some lovely artwork commissioned especially for it as well. Yeah, but like commemorative covers, or at least, you know, each one, you you, uh, you remember the festival because of the cover of the damn thing, actually. Yeah, exactly, and of course this is a celebratory year in Auckland because it's the 50th yeah. edition. Uh, which is a pretty cool milestone. I think most of the other ones are fairly close. Of course, it's hard to remember exactly, you know, but, you know, I'm pretty sure Dunedin and Wellington are somewhere in the 40s, etc. Bill will know all this. Bill Gosson. Yeah, Bill Gosson, the, kind of the man behind this. I'm going to lasso him in, uh, hopefully next week, to talk about the history of the New Zealand International Film Festival, because I think there have been riots and walkouts and things <laughs> like Pat, Pat Bartlett getting a knickers in a twist about some tits. Yeah, there's, there's certainly been a few uh, movies that have caused controversy over the years. And I, I can remember there have also been some stand-up arguments. I distinctly remember being in Dunedin, uh, must have been in the 90s, where there were huge arguments playing out about J Noam Chomsky's sort of philosophies on things, because there was a documentary about him playing. Oh, God. And it was just, you know, heated jurisprudence and philosophical debates going on. It was crazy. Oh, unbelievable. Yes. But I thought this week we'd just um, pick out a few, having poured through the program, just pick out a few that we're really looking forward to. Yeah, so not, ne not necessarily ones that we've seen, but ones that we've seen on the program that are, you know, worth checking out on the big screen and are just, you know, the, the kind of must-sees. And, and the one I have to start with first is a movie called Arctic, okay. which has got uh, the great Danish actor Mads Mikkelsen, who was uh, the bad guy in Casino Royale. 
Royale. He also played Hannibal Lecter in the TV series. And this is a film um, shot in Iceland about the sole survivor of a plane crash. Um, look, you know, two hours of Mads Mikkelsen by himself doing brooding and surrounded by Iceland ice. That sounds pretty cool to me, actually. Yeah, and also uh, it's a, just such a great showcase for an actor, isn't it? And um, I remember John Hurt did something similar. He wasn't the only person in the movie, but about 90% of it was the, the man and the penguins or something. And uh, That was the first thing that really turned me on to John Hurt. I said, God, you're good. Yeah, look, and uh, I guess it's the kind of thing that Bruno Lawrence was oh, famous yeah, yeah, for. Yeah. You think of The Quiet Earth in particular, but as you say, other people in it, but 90% of the movie, yep. Bruno mumbling. Yeah. Gotta okay. love it. All right, Arctic, that's... Oh, get a program. I'm not going to read out what they all are. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're into uh, big acting... Uh, I noticed uh, Bill Gosden made a comment the other day. Ethan Hawke has got four movies in this festival. Oh, it's the Ethan Hawke Film Festival. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, one in particular, which has been getting a lot of rave reviews in the States is the, at the moment, is one called First Reformed, where he plays a country priest who starts questioning his faith after a, an uh, unnerving encounter with a radical environmentalist. Oh. Now, this is um, uh, directed by Paul Schrader, who, of course, is famous for being the screenwriter of Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Mm. And uh, apparently it's very thought-provoking and very dramatic uh, tale. Mm. Um, it's certainly one worth checking out. In the same kind of vein, Leave No Trace. Now, this is the one that certainly some listeners may have heard about because it's got a brilliant performance that it's centred by a Kiwi. Oh, yes. Young Thomason Harcourt McKenzie, uh, granddaughter of Kate Harcourt, daughter of Miranda Harcourt. And Miranda Carport, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, now, right, I can see the likeness now. She looks like Veranda Carport. (laughs) (laughs) But, yes, she's being counted as a new Jennifer Lawrence, thanks to this, because it's got the same director, a woman by the name of Deborah Granick, who is coming out uh, for its screenings here. Um, So uh, Thomason plays a a teen uh, who's um, living off the grid with her sort of war veteran father, who's played by Ben Foster, who was in Six Feet Under and Hell or High Water. It it also reminds me of, there was a Viggo Mortensen film a couple of years ago called Captain Fantastic, similar sort of off the grid, off the craziness scale sort of thing. But yeah, um, if you enjoyed Winter's Bone, which was the movie that really put Jennifer Lawrence on the map, then apparently you'll love this. Okay. Graves at Sundance, just opened in the US, and man, um, Harcourt McKenzie's getting some amazing notices, and now she's in Taika Waititi's new film, Jojo Rabbit, she's in a Netflix thing with Robert Pattinson, and um, Timothy Chalamet, who's the next big thing in the States, yeah, look, it's all happening for her. No, she's holding a rabbit on the program, I don't know, I wonder what happens to the rabbit, anyway, no, it's got great reviews. Yep, documentary-wise. Yes, please. Um, look, there's so many documentaries, and, you know, we'll definitely talk about a lot of them in the next few weeks, but the one that intrigues me the most is a Kiwi one, and this is from the, actually from the producers of The Breaker Upper, is the um, comedy that's been going gangbusters here this year. Um, this is all about uh, five female Kiwi shearers. It's called She Shears, and it oh, shows yes. them as they're vying for golden shears glory. I'm, I like so the look of this. Much, as we call it, the spellbound theory. You know, uh, there's a competition, there are a number of people vying for that title, and this follows them in the build-up to it. Nice. Uh, not best in show, but sort of uh, that, that sort of concentrated on one obsessive thing. 
Yeah, Best in Show is basically the Mickey version of, right. of this kind of thing. Yeah, yep. okay. It'll be fascinating to watch, and apparently the five are from different parts of the country as well, so you get to see some, uh, you know, definite differences. In, I'd be interested if there's a South Island style versus a North Island oh, style. Oh, there's that kind bound of thing. to be. Look, there's a Catlin style, South Catlin style. Jeez, <laughs> oh, yeah, it can be pretty bleak there, it has to be said. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. Yeah. We're going, yeah, no, it's like we're, we'll take you there in the next hour and have a look at some yellowheads. So there you, you go. To, you have to watch out for the sea lions as well at the same time. No, 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 we're inland. This is the bush, no. baby. All right. Okay. Excellent. No, that looks good. Uh, there's a couple from Cairns. Uh, of course, Car the Cannes Film Festival is now one of the big uh, contributors, really, thanks to um, Bill Gosden and, and his team. Mm -hmm. They are now picking up, you know, they're basically cherry-picking the best of that uh, French Riviera Festival uh, in May and bringing them all over here. I mean, it's amazing how quickly they can get them. We're, they've got the Palme d'Or winner, which is called Shoplifters, which is by probably one of the most interesting directors of the last few years, a guy from Japan, called Koreata Hirokazu. Mm -hmm. uh, he's done films like I Wish, After the Storm, Our Little Sister. He's kind of like the um, the Ozu uh, of this generation, essentially. Ozu was a, a terrific Japanese sort of realist director who did things like Tokyo Story as his most famous film. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he's kind of uh, this generation's one. And this, this is a story about an unconventional family who are sort of trying to make ends meet on the margins of Tokyo. Apparently it is very amazing. Uh, if you're into something more provocative, then... No, hang on. Uh, is this is your shoplifters? Is that yeah. Madey Uppy or is it Doko? No, Madey Uppy. Oh, good. Okay. It's a Madey Uppy. Yep. So, so, so while uh, it, it's like the French, uh, Italian neorealism, I was going to say French New Wave, but so, so the idea is it's acted, but it may as well be real. Okay. Lochi kind of stuff as well. Thank you. You know, amazingly put to put together dramatic things that feel like it could be a doco. Very good. Yep. Uh, yeah, if you're into something more provocative than Climax, which is the latest from the... Actually, funnily enough, given uh, the game that's going to be played, what, tomorrow morning, is it? Um, a French-based Argentine-born filmmaker, Gaspar <laughs> uh, Noe, who, of course, is infamous in New Zealand for creating a film called Irreversible about 13 years ago. Uh -huh. This was one that got... Uh, or could only be played in the film festival... Uh, and the likes of the society for, what was it, promotion of community standards, said, ban the sick thing. Oh. And they tried to prevent it being released on general release uh, and failed to do so. Um, and it was actually quite an amazing film. It just had a couple of scenes that were pretty hard-hitting. Uh, and this is his latest effort. It's a musical horror about a troupe of hip-hop dancers experiencing a bad trip. Um, and... Um, uh, by all accounts, it's one of his best and certainly uh, another one to sort of, you know, steal yourself for but be absolutely amazed by. That's what the, the right film mood. festival's for. We need That's these right, things. That's right, exactly. And, of course... Is it all about orgasms? Uh, I think to a degree, but there's lots of other stuff going on as well. Okay. Um, the, uh, the, let's just say he managed to out Lars von Trier, Lars von Trier this year at Cannes, which is... Pretty, pretty something pretty big. Okay. Um, Ant Timpson, that's, that's an Ant Timpson special. And, of course, he's actually the co-producer of another one, uh, which is uh, an anthology of horror short stories. Now, horror being very hot right now, 
uh, apparently. Um, this is called The Field Guide to Evil, and um, he and uh, another producer called Tim League, who's a fairly big name in the States, they've um, put together a number of directors from around the world who have come up with folk tales from around the world, mm. uh, which all have a kind of horror basis. As a lot of folk tales do, don't they? Yeah. To be honest, um, and and this is uh, yeah, there's there's something for everyone, as they say. Okay, yeah, this that's kind of grab bag of uh, horror. A lot of um, a lot of folk tales are grim. Yeah, ba boom, so true. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that looks um, good. Yep, and and the other one I just want to briefly touch on is look, I know that. Uh, remakes of foreign language films are generally pretty piss poor, really. Mm. But there was an Argentine film about seven or eight years ago called Puzzle, which was very cool. It was all about this woman who discovers this new passion for jigsaws and meets uh, a man at the same time, and it's, yeah, it was just lovingly played out. They've done an English language remake, but I really like the casting. Oh, okay. It's not American casting. It's train-spotting Scottish extraordinaire actress Kelly MacDonald and the brilliant Indian actor Irfan Khan. Okay. And it just appeals to me no end. All right, yeah. So it's a roughie that that might just be a, a, a warm winter's delight on a bleak Auckland day. Right. I know you're... Which I'm sure it's every day, isn't it? I know it's, um, you're our reviewer, but Sydney Film Festival said... Puzzle is a superb vehicle for the talents of Kelly MacDonald and Irfan Khan and a sweet and empathetic film about finally finding independence. Geez, it's hard to put something on the packet to say what's in it, isn't it? <laughs> one year, one year. If you ask Bill Gosden nicely, I reckon one year he'll let you write one of those blurbs. Oh, God, yeah. Just I'd, for the sake of it, I'd just because like I know a, you'd love it. A postmodernist piss take that sounds good. Yep, uh, I think it would have to be on the latest four-hour Portuguese epic, though. Okay. You know, we wouldn't wouldn't give you something easy. No. <laughs> and there is there is a four-hour film. I'll look that up and we oh, can talk about no, it. Oh, no, there's one. not. Has it got a half-time? It's a Chinese one, actually, this year. Yeah? They haven't got a slow cinema section. You might remember they had one for a few years. They oh. haven't got that this year. Okay. But, but I did notice one the other day when I was leafing through the program. There was one that clocked in at a... A fairly pedestrian 236 minutes. Okay. I have, I've copied and I've always keep this at hand for just such occasions as these, James. Uh, the most preposterous uh, description of a movie. Um, I won't say what the movie is, but this really happened. This really was printed in a film festival program. Okay? Are you sitting down? I am. A constellation of ten meditative, poetic, and tenderly political cinematic evocations that chart their way through a series of relational correlations to objects of our solar system, drawing together an ecology of influences, it weaves its way through an audio-visual tapestry of relationist meditations, political mythologies, photonic sculptures, atomic choreographies, and ceremonial homages to the world, and what it means to be part of it, to to engage with it, to listen to it, to embody it, and be embodied by it. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> anyway, sorry to eating up your time. Maybe you should find a few of the choicest ones and see if Bill can guess what the movie's yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, good idea. Good one. Thanks very much for the early heads up, James. We'll be all over the film festival next week. We'll drag Bill Gosden in on the 50th anniversary because we love a round number. Next up, uh, Max Cryer answering your questions on words. Thank you, James. Okay, cheers. Words with Max Cryer. 
Here he is, Max Cryer, answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. Uh, if you want to ask Max something, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and there's a form there. It says email. You can ask a question on Facebook uh, any way you like and I forward them on to Max. You can still write a letter. P.O. Box 8880 Simon Street, Auckland. All right, Max, uh, not just answering people's questions on words and such. Interesting words of the week, I suppose, of some of import. Word. Yes, we like to have a word of the week, and the word this week, curiously enough, is winter. Uh -huh. Well, the word has been in English for at least 900 years. Uh, it's, it's drawn, it has drawn on relative words across from the continent, such as the ancient German Winter, and the old Scandinavian, which had Vetra and Vitra, and then ancient North Holland had Winter, and all of them date back to the very early Germanic, which was Ventrutz. Now that itself goes even further back to an ancient word, Vet, which became our word wet, and another even more ancient European word meaning cold. And through all of that, we finished up with the season known as winter. And incidentally, our, our word season is actually a relative of old French, saison, which meant sowing or planting. And originally this referred to actually sowing seeds. But later it shifted definition to refer to the time, to the period when you do sow seeds. So literally seed time. And that drifted into English in the 1200s, although the meaning has obviously stretched quite a bit because we now think there are four seasons of the year and not all of them would be at least suitable for planting no. seeds. But also gradually the other word related to all this is the word seasoning, which came into use to describe adding flavour to foods by what we call seasoning, which comes from the old French word meaning to ripen. Oh, really? So it's a little tasty. Yes, so that you add to what's there and right. round it out with something mature. Yeah, it's not as if you can sprinkle autumn on something, but effectively you do. Yes, effectively mm. you Harvest do. Harvest time. Mm. Yes. That is fascinating. All right. Um, just as well, because that's what we've got you here for, Max. <laughs> Not to be fascinating. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. Okay, so sit up straight, shoulders back, and let's deliver. Uh, someone asked about jot uh, in as much as doesn't matter a jot, I think was the example that came through uh, via Facebook. So, Max, a if jot. Someone doesn't, yeah, if someone doesn't care a jot, the, mm. the listener said, what is a jot? Well, jot comes from Greek. A jot is the anglicised name for the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Oh. The Latin version of Greek jot is iota, which is also used in English the same way as jot to indicate a very small amount. Now, the English version has been in use since the 1500s, and it appears in the King James Bible, 1611, Verily, quote, Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Right. And you'll notice the word tittle included uh, is even smaller. Um, tittle is a combination of tiny and little, and the dot over the letter J can be called a tittle. Jot can also be a verb. If you write down something short, very quickly, and even if, especially if you abbreviated it, you've said you jotted it down. Ah, 
Now, because the Bible says jot or tittle, we'd better have a look at tittle. Um, that's been in English for over a thousand years. It originally meant a tiny mark or accent over a letter of the alphabet when written or printed in the communication style of hundreds of years ago. And the word comes from the Latin titulus, but gradually over centuries, tittle moved into referring to something so small as hardly to be noticed. It was the word to use, wait for this, the dots on a dice. Ah, They nice, are the tittles. Nice. So by 1611, when the Bible wrote about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reports that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, quote, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So Jesus, using both words, strengthened the case that the law was not going to change by even the smallest alteration. Which means you're stoned to death if you collect sticks on Sunday. That's, that's in the law. That's in the law, is it? Yeah. And do you think he abided by that? I don't know, actually. I don't, it's, it's in the gospel anyway. We'll just say that, yes. that this jot or tittle thing is in the gospel. Uh, uh, we we <coughs> shan't get into the hermeneutics of the matter, which is a big flash word for what shit means Meaning. in the Bible. <laughs> right. And the interesting thing about iota, I'd never connected those two, jot and iota. Um, it's that J and the I sort yes. of change, isn't yeah, it? Like yes, yes. Uh, Troy and Trojan. Yes, often happens. Yeah, yeah. That's Jot fascinating. Is, Jot is the smallest name. It's the anglicised name for the smallest letter of the alphabet. Right. Greek I alphabet. Iota. And Iota. when it changes Jot. to Latin, the Latin for Jot is Iota. Right. So they're the same thing. Yeah. Fabulous. All right. Um, hard liquor. Vodka, whiskey, rum. That sort of thing. We know them as spirits. Yes. Are there ghosts in there, Max? Well, uh, the question says, why is hard liquor called spirits? Well, the whole subject of history of alcoholic drinks and the words used with them is rather frustrating because the origin of the words can be worked out, but the usage can be a bit confusing. The word liquor itself and many of its relatives all descend from the Latin liquere, which simply means fluid. But of course in English it's taken on a, a slightly different um, reference. Now, during the 1300s, English gained that word liquid, meaning any fluid for drinking. And over the following century, during the 1400s, the modified word liquor, O-R, started meaning a drink or alcoholic beverage. At first, the word hard was attached to some liquors which were harsh or sharp to the taste. But over time, there crept in a distinction which became firm in the 1800s, and it still applies. The term hard liquor refers to drink which has been distilled, whiskey or brandy, as different from ones which are merely drinks which are merely fermented, such as wine and beer. Right down the bottom of that change came the term soft drink, which meant no alcohol at all. Now, one branch of alcoholic drinks which are sweetened gained a name straight from French for liquor. They're referred to as liqueurs, alcoholic, usually quite strong, sweet, highly flavoured, such as chartreuse, curaçao, schnapps, cointreau, generally served after dinner. So why are many of these drinks, usually the distilled kind, referred to as spirits? The answer in the phrase is the answer is something which all researchers hate. 
that nobody is actually sure, but there are several theories. So all I can do is put forward the theories. Number one, in ancient medieval times, the men known as alchemists made distilled liquors, that's the, the hard liquor, but they were concerned not only with the resultant liquor, but also with the vapors given off during the distilling procedure. This vapor was collected and was believed to have medicinal powers, and the vapor was referred to as the spirit of the original material. Oh, I see. That does have a certain image, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's like if you just sealed a person down, you might be able to um, uh, <laughs> get, get their soul in a bottle. drinks rather than person. <laughs> it's like their soul is evaporated and you can um, distill it down. Theory number two. Oh. The listener who asked this question about liquor being referred to spirit suggested in a sort of jokey kind of way, do people think there are ghosts or spiritual creatures inside the bottle? Well, curiously, the answer is yes. And related to explanation number one, that the vapour coming off the, uh, the drink which is being distilled has, has a certain life of its own. And there, are, there were and are people who think that as far back as the 1100s, European monks believed that during the distilling process, a spirit was removed from the mash, and that spirit had some religious significance. And there was a practice, which still exists, of pouring the first drink of the finished liquor, then throwing it onto the ground. So to give the angels some share of the magic properties. That's explanation number two. Right. Explanation number three is the one which has the strongest support. They are referred to as spirits because alcohol makes, imbibing alcohol raises one's spirits. Right. And that it has an effect. It, it changes your spirit as well, maybe. So maybe it's another spirit going in. Some people and become depressed when they drink alcohol. Yeah, and other people become uproariously hilarious. But that's spirited, isn't it? Oh, mm, spirited. Yeah. Well, the spirited can mean active, like, you know, spirited children are those ones running mm, around. Mm. And alcohol doesn't normally... In I'm going with the ghost one. Because it wasn't that long ago people thought, you know, General Franco believed in alchemy, believe it or not. Yes, well, when I found that during the, the background for today, uh, um, th there was a sort of feeling crossed my mind that when you're making liquor and you're boiling it away and this, these fumes are coming off, mm. they would be quite powerful, I would think. Yeah. And, 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 and it, it does, it is, in fact, the essence of something in, in a way. And that so you're, that it's, you're it's taking its out, you're taking yeah. it out from, from what you're boiling. Yeah. Um, but clearly it had some sort of smell or effect and the people d didn't like to waste anything. In no, I suppose when you think about distilling stuff. But I quite like hard and soft. Hard liquor is distilled. Yeah. And anything which is soft is merely Not fermented except soft drinks, um, which have no like, liquor at all. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, we shall take a short break, and when we return, answering more of your questions on words, the origin and meaning of a Saturday night. Green, associating, associated with jealousy and envy. We'll address that. That's a good question. Green with envy. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Max Cry is here, uh, part two of uh, Saturday night on uh, words, their origin and meaning. Green being associated with jealousy and envy. What a good question. Funny colour. It doesn't... 
crop up all that often. It doesn't crop mm. up lately, I think. Although, yeah. although I'm familiar with it. Green with envy, yes, the green-eyed monster. That's green Shakespeare. Monster. Yes, yes. Well, it's really Shakespeare that's our only term of reference. Because, Is it? Yes, because um, that would make it 400 years old at least, and there's not much or anything I could find earlier than that. Um, two of Shakespeare's most famous plays uh, have a reference to green being envy and the color green is associated with two other unfortunate factors that we're familiar with this is one possible explanation i don't have much faith in it but someone has put forward the explanation that the color green is associated with number one a bout of sickness it is often perceived that people's skin sometimes takes on a slightly yellowish greenish tinge when seriously ill and even to the healthy, number two, green is also the colour of unripe fruits, which when eaten cause stomach pains. Now, there's no authority behind either of those, but my job is to dig up anything that oh. might help. And those are two of the theories that we fall forward. Now, we don't know if Shakespeare invented the association, but he certainly made it famous, the connection between green and jealousy. 1596, he wrote Portia in The Merchant of Venice, referring to shuddering fear and green-eyed jealousy. Then, in 1605, Othello, Iago says to Othello, Beware, my lord of jealousy, it is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Now, in that context, meat just meant food. Now, green, ever since then, has been associated with envy and or jealousy, and I couldn't find any reference for it earlier than Shakespeare. And someone looking for a clue wrote quite a sort of clever possibility. It could be that Shakespeare's reference, monster which doth mock the food it feeds on, was referring to cats, which are usually green-eyed, and cats do tend to treat cruelly any animal they've attacked before they actually kill it and eat it. And Shakespeare depicted envy and jealousy as a mysterious force with green eyes which combined love and hatred together, and the mysterious force toys with its victim before consuming the victim's peace of mind. Envy, jealousy, they're not exactly the same thing, but over years it seems to some people that feelings of envy and jealousy are sometimes similar. They sometimes overlap. People suffering from envy tend to associate it also with jealousy. And the association with green has become attached to both because Shakespeare noticed that green-eyed predators do not kill outright. They maim and prolong the discomfort of their victims. And that's the best explanation anyone's ever come up with. Do you know, it fits Iago, the character yes. in Othello, one yeah. of the most evil characters yeah. ever conceived. Yes, extraordinary. Isn't it? Yes. Bizarre. But he pretended that he wasn't, you see. It gets better. Yes. So Shakespeare... He really did consolidate this whole idea of green, probably. Well, um, for green my, and envy and jealousy. the research that I've done, yes. Yeah. Um, unless it went back into ancient Greek, which I can't read, uh, I could find no reference to it being any earlier than Shakespeare. Right. Mind you, in Shakespeare's time, research wasn't written down and put into libraries in the way it is now, or not, no. as, not as freely. No. But it did make a certain sort of sense that cats do do that. When a cat catches a mouse, it mm. doesn't just jump on it and eat it. No. You see them pawing it with their paw, and the poor mouse is trying to get away. And it is what Iago kind of did exactly. in Othello. Yes, and the, the cat had green eyes when it yeah. was doing that. Yeah, so, yeah. That's, that's so we have to put it forward. Interesting that, theory. But to, be put it, but to be honest, we have to use the word theory. Yeah.
All right. Feisty. Someone's just asked plain out, uh, how did we get the word? F-E-I-F-E-I-S-T-Y. Feisty. F-E-I-S-T-Y. Feisty. How, how would you, what do you think feisty means? Mm-hmm. I before E except after C. <laughs> <laughs> now, what does it mean? Oh, sorry. Feisty. Um, s- s- spirited. Courageous. In, spirited in uh, am, am, ambitious, in something to do with the self, but spirited. Yes, all right. Well, the word, um, my job is the history, and the word has a bizarre history. Um, it's usually defined as meaning exuberant or slightly aggressive or touchy. It descends, this is good, it descends from the word fist. Ah. Which once had two meanings. As we all know, fist indicates a clenched hand, Mm -hmm. but during the 1400s, fist developed a secondary meaning, politely described as, wait for this, a small backward escape of wind accompanied by an unpleasant smell. Get out! It's true. It's true. It's true. Get out! It is absolutely true. It developed a second meaning during the 1400s, and this phenomenon was possibly quite unfairly associated with dogs. So the expression a fisting cur came into use during the 1800s and the fisting narrowed down through usage and became feist, applied, again unfairly, to highly active dogs. Then Farting. Yes. Farting dogs. Farting dogs. We're grown-ups. Yes. It's after eight. Yes. And um, gradually the word from feisting narrowed down to feisty, and the farting was sort of moved out, and it became exuberant, spirited, mildly aggressive. The association with dogs and smell were completely forgotten. In fact, nowadays, calling somebody feisty can be meant as a compliment. Nurse, Max is making things up again. <laughs> it's not true. I'm Unbelievable. Not making, it's absolutely true. It's out of your age range, of course, Graham. You weren't born when all this happened. No. <laughs> Um, We're speaking 1800, the year 1800. That's not that long ago, but I was just uh, fascinated. So fist actually meant a dog fart, really? No, no. Fist indicates a clenched hand, but it it acquired a second meaning. It's always meant the clenched hand. I can't quote you Shakespeare on that, but I'm sure he used it somewhere. But then it moved for some odd reason to dogs making a smell. (laughs) (laughs) Believe me, language is a never-ending adventure. (laughs) And a very interesting one. Well, the next one's interesting too, Okay, yeah. This is, I remember this coming through, uh, another Facebook question. You can email Max questions and I forward them on and he gets his nose into the books. So, the origin of singlet. Singlet, yes, it's a word we take for granted. It's not often mentioned in conversation or in use, but we all know what a singlet is, especially most men. Now, um, the listener who asked has an American friend, and the American friend heard the word singlet and asked what it meant. And this American that we're mentioning was a man. So it seemed rather odd that he didn't know what a singlet was. Well, strangely enough, it's quite a complex subject. Different nations have different words for such a simple thing. Going back to the 1400s, nearly all men wore a garment made of two layers of material with padding between, closely fitted to the upper body and known as a doublet. You've heard of a doublet? No. Underneath that... I can tell where this is going. (laughs) Underneath that, they wore a simple body-shaped undergarment made from one layer of cloth 
called a shirt. Now, over time, up to about the 1700s, both garments started to move one layer out. The padded doublet became what we would now call a jacket, still padded, but you could put it on and off, and the shirt moved up one layer and became the visible upper body garment, still called a shirt. But because unlike the visible top jacket, which was padded and required two layers of fabric, and the one underneath that had always been called a shirt, the garment underneath that, the third layer, a kind of flimsy undergarment made from, wait for it, a single layer of fabric, uh -huh. became known as a singlet, as opposed to a doublet, which had two layers of fabric. In many places, such as New Zealand, that word still applies. But Americans somehow dropped the term, and for some unknown reason, they completely ignored singlet, and they used three other terms. The word vest is used in states, or sometimes undershirt, or intriguingly, the term tank top. Now, I hear you say, why is it called a tank top? You'll never believe the answer, but this is true. It's called a tank, tank top. Good question. It was a lightweight, close-fitting, sleeveless, narrow-shoulder-strapped garment which people wore to swimming, you know, swimming in what we call swimming pools, but they called swimming tanks. Ah. Uh, Isn't that bizarre? But Otherwise, no. So I'm going to repeat this tomorrow night. This is brilliant. <laughs> if you went swimming in a swimming tank in America, you wore this sort of... A tank top. A tank top, yes. And it's still called that. I've seen them for sale in America. Now, Australia seems to vary. It had between T-shirt and tank shop. And curiously, um, the word singlet, which actually arose centuries ago in England, has now moved aside. And they use, commonly use the word there, vest. Right. Now today, in our family, yes. we um, also call them shimmies. It uh, was uh, anglicisation, a Kiwiisation, perhaps, of shimmy. Ah, uh, shimmies, yeah. yes. We I somehow put, think put of, your shimmy on, Graham. But shimmy is a movement as well. Yeah, I wish I could shimmy like my sister Kate. It's yes, a famous song. but it was just what we call the singlet thing. I, I have an, uh, sort of an aura of um, regarding that as a, as a female garment. Ah, uh, ah, uh, shimmy. But not to worry. Oh, not to worry. Now, but but uh, I have another oh. interesting vest fact. In the 1930s, I don't know, I can't recall exactly what movie it was, but it caused the utter collapse yes, yes, of I'm, the sale uh, of the singlet. Yes, I'm, I'm sort of moving with you. I can't think of the details. It was Clark Gable, It was it? Clark Gable. Clark Gable took his shirt off. And some hot babe in a black and white mm. movie, and they were caught together and they had to uh, sleep together in the same room and so uh, we shan't be um, you know lascivious or, or create any scandal we'll put up uh, a, a wall made of a curtain and so they did that so that they had separate areas and at one stage he comes through the curtain and takes his shirt off no vest shimmy singlet it's his bare chest and it's probably the sexiest thing ever seen in the movies. It was a huge... In the out, outside of Europe, um, ever. It was a huge sensation, I remember that. And it sort of altered the history of the cinema. Nobody bought a vest again. <laughs> <laughs> it, the sales honestly plummeted by about 90%. Thank goodness I deal only with the words. <laughs> now today, um, June the 30th, 44 years ago from today, New Zealand had only one TV channel. 
It was called TB1. But moves were afoot to restructure the controlling air, and there was a restructure thereof, and the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation was broken into separate structures, Radio New Zealand and television. TB1 began broadcasting in 1960, and 43 years ago today, June the 30th, 1975, a second TV channel became available to viewers in Auckland and Christchurch, named South Pacific Television. It gradually enlarged its coverage to include Wellington and Dunedin. Then in 1980, South Pacific Television merged with TB1, and South Pacific Television was renamed TB2, then officially became TVNZ2 until TV1 and TVNZ2 merged and became Television New Zealand. Right. So two-channel television in New Zealand began 43 years ago today. Wow. I'm just trying to find out the name of this movie. Oh, it happened one night. That's right, I remember now. It's yes, got a I've fact check here on Snopes whether it did collapse the singlet market. But anyway, um, we'll find that out in a second. It's so important what a television company's named, isn't it? <laughs> Not well. Is when I when I got you know got my, my claws into this because yeah. I like to do something about the date. Yeah. It was so complicated to put it into a sort of a simple paragraph yeah. that ordinary you know New Zealanders listening might hopefully understand. Mm. <laughs> Mind you, we all lived through it. We've seen all that happen. It was called South Pacific Television. Yeah. Then it was TV Two. Then it was TVNZ Two. Then it was something else. And and uh, I think all people want to do is just switch on and see yeah. the screen light up. Yeah, it's it's one of those jobs. I'd love to have, actually. The longest lunch in the world. Oh, we need a new name for this <laughs> company. Oh, yeah, sure. No worries. Look, we're going to give it a lot of thought. <laughs> we might have to have several lunches. We might. Me. Yeah, this is going to take months. This is a very, very, very serious and important operation. And uh, it, here's the invoice. Okay. Uh, I do want to also say um, the Chills exhibition is on at the Otago Museum. Um, I think former members have been asked to stand in a corner uh, behind a little red rope. Uh, Martin Phillips is, is there from time to time. Martin Phillips of the Chills, one of New Zealand's most loved and famous bands. His birthday on July the 2nd. Uh, forget how old he is, but it's his birthday. And I'm sure the exhibition's still on. They wouldn't up sticks before his birthday on July the 2nd. So go have a look.